Okay, in the, in the last part of Zechariah 1, uh, we saw the Lord's power and, and the fact that He is uh, ultimately, ultimately in control. Um, in, the context, in the context of Zechariah's ministry, um, the Jews were back in the land and, and God was calling them uh, to turn back to Him. We saw that before. Um, yet while all this was going on, um, it, it seemed like the pagan nations of the world were, were doing fine. That was the uh, lesson we saw from the previous prophecy. Um, it seemed like the people who were the most godless were the were the people who were, you know, with all the power and with the, in, our, in, in control. Um, in our last lesson, God sets the record straight, showing that, uh, you know, it's He that's in control uh, of all of history, and He is working all things toward His end. Um we saw that you know the 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 believer need not fear uh, the rage of the world or the threats of the heathen for yeah our god is is the one who's in control of all things nothing comes about that god doesn't allow uh and he doesn't allow anything outside of his uh purposes that you know that means that there is a good purpose even behind the bad things that happen in our lives in our in our world um, all the things that go on, um, understanding the sovereignty of God is—it's not just a blind idea that everything is going to work out fine. You know, uh, that's uh, as a as a hospital chaplain, that's something that you know you, you don't tell somebody grieving at that moment. Hey, everything's going to be fine. Um, that's not what God's sovereignty is. It's not just a a, a cliched, you know, well, it's all going to be fine. Don't worry about it. It's uh, God's sovereignty. It's the understanding that God is growing his people in number. Uh, he's adding to his people. And he is growing his people to become more like Christ. Those who are already part of the kingdom, he's growing them to become more like Christ. And in doing so, he allows the wickedness of man to affect our lives in such a way that his good purposes. Uh, are the result we see this over and over again in scripture now it's a subject that's very emotional on both sides there are some sections of of people who uh, raise god's sovereignty uh to the level where uh you know man is nothing more than you know uh, an automated puppet if you will and then there are those who on the other on the other side while they they would probably with their words affirm god's sovereignty uh basically cut the legs out from under god's sovereignty by saying uh you know man can do what he wants to do and and god's just up there going dang i wish that wouldn't have happened um i don't know if you've ever tried to counsel somebody that's going through grief or going through a loss, going through tragedy, uh, even going through some awful, horrible tragedies that have been perpetrated upon them by evil men or evil people. Uh, but when you when you try to counsel those people, what what you will often hear is, uh, let's just say someone murdered your loved one or, or, or just something awful like that were to happen, uh, you will hear... Uh, sometimes counselors, people who are, are mean well trying to help, saying, "Now, now you know God didn't have anything to do with that. That was just that was just man's evil." And then in the very next sentence, they'll turn around and say, 
God has a wonderful plan for you and he loves you and he's here to care for you and take, you know, comfort you. And, and whenever I hear that, I'm, I'm always thinking like, well, where was God yesterday when, when all this happened? If he loves me so much and he wants to care for me, why didn't he stop this from happening? And, uh, you know, the common objection to that is, well, God won't go against uh, a person's will. And I, and I'm always thinking, well, the person who got, you know, who, who was murdered or the person who got sick, you know, didn't have a choice. He went against their their will by allowing this guy. So you get into a huge sticky situation. Uh, the scripture, uh, scripturally, without putting a label over the over the front door, let's just we, we must affirm that scripture holds both uh, God's sovereignty, his total and complete sovereignty over all things. It holds that up as a truth. Yet it also holds up the fact that man is responsible for his actions. He's responsible for his choices, and he's commanded to make uh, certain choices. And so what you see when you put those together, and those are two things that our minds have a hard time reconciling, but what you see when you put those two things together is that God is working and sovereign and in control, but his control is... Um, his control is demonstrated in this world in such a way that it does not violate the will of man. So thereby, you can say, I could say to a person who, who, you know, had some tragedy happen to them, you know, I don't know why this is going on. I don't know why this has happened to you. But I can assure you that God does work all things for your good if you're his child. God does work all of history together. Just as an example, let me show you, let me take you to Isaiah chapter 10. I'm not going to read the chapter, but you go and study that that chapter. It's very instructive as to how these two things work together. In Isaiah 10, we see the, the Assyrians being used by God, <clears throat> this pagan nation of Assyria, this wicked nation, being used by God to punish Israel uh, for their sin. Okay, so God brings these people, these Assyrians, he calls them, God actually calls them in Isaiah chapter 10, the rod of his judgment. You know, he is going to bring them against you because of all of your sin and because of all you've turned from me and all those things. So God himself claims responsibility for bringing these Assyrians uh, to punish Israel. And we know that historically the Assyrians came and wiped out the northern kingdom and, and God did not allow them to destroy Jerusalem and the southern kingdom. But as for Israel, the northern kingdom uh, it wiped them out, sent them into captivity, and moved people in as colonists to take over their kingdom. So God claims responsibility for this. And then in the same chapter, in Isaiah chapter 10, God turns around and punishes Assyria for what they did. Now, you can see that, that it, it almost seems like, well, well, that's not really fair, but... The Assyrians were not, they were not, um, they were not doing what they were doing because they wanted to be the rod of God's judgment. They were doing what they were doing because of the evil in their heart. They just wanted to destroy. They wanted to, to, you know, take over and break things and, you know, and kill the people and take over the kingdom. But God was behind the scenes using their evil for his good purpose. And, and, and we see that over and over in, in Genesis. You can see the Genesis when, when Joseph's brothers beat him. Uh, 
and sold him into slavery in Egypt. Uh, they did so because of the sinfulness, the sin that was in their heart. They were jealous of Joseph. They, they hated Joseph. They were tired of, of Joseph's smart mouth and the fact that, the fa that uh, Jacob loved Joseph more than all the rest of them. And so the sin rose up in their hearts and they beat him. They stripped him. They threw him in a pit and eventually sold him into slavery where, where he went to Egypt. <clears throat> they did that. Of their own volition because of the sin in the heart. Yet later on in the book of Genesis, Joseph himself says that the reason that he was sent to Egypt was for God's good purpose. Uh, he says, uh, I think it's, it's in Genesis chapter 50 where he said, God sent me to Egypt in order to save many people alive, it was through Joseph and his dealings with Pharaoh and the interpretation of the dreams that he uh, he interpreted for Pharaoh that all of Egypt was spared from this huge famine that that uh, was sweeping the land. And so God was behind the scenes moving history in a direction uh, for his good purpose. And that purpose included the sinfulness of the brothers who would beat him and sell him into slavery. Now, before we even go on, that does not mean that God caused them to sin. It does not mean that God was had a gun to their back saying, you're going to sin because I've got a good purpose behind it. No, they were acting out of the own, their own evil hearts, out of their own will, but God sovereignly was controlling all things and ordaining all things so that his purposes would be done. It's a very, very sticky subject, but we have to hold both as true, both God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Even, you, you see the same thing in the cross, I mean, what better example that uh, the men got together, you know, and the Jews uh, um, turned Jesus over, the Romans crucified him, Pilate washed his hands and, and said, you know, basically just sidestepped it and said, y'all do whatever you want. Uh, I'm going to give you what you want. Uh, Herod was just crazy. You know, he was saying, do a trick for me, Jesus, and Jesus wouldn't do anything for him. And so he sent him back. They, they all had a hand in the crucifixion, but we can see God claiming responsibility, saying that Jesus was a lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And, and in Acts chapter four, the disciples uh, speak of the wickedness. I mean, they're praying in, in this prayer in Acts chapter four, uh, they pray and they, they talk about the wickedness of the Romans, the Jews, of Pilate, and Herod, and all the hand that they played in crucifying Jesus. But in that same verse, they also state that everything Pilate did, everything Herod did, everything the Jews did, everything the Romans did, were, was what God had planned from the beginning of the world, that his son would be crucified. Let me, um, it may take me a second, I don't have my my Bible open right here, but let me just go and read Acts chapter 4, see if I can pull it up real quick and, and show you what, uh, what it says, uh, just so you can hear the verse, uh, you can hear the verse um, read, uh, I'm stalling while I'm looking for it, um, let's see, Acts chapter 4, 
I know what's in here. Ah, here we go. <clears throat> and there is they're talking. Let me just start Acts chapter four. Um, let, let me just start in verse twenty-four. It says, "And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of." Our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his Christ. And then in verse 27 it says, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And so what you see there is you see the they're not letting Pilate off the hook. They're not letting Herod off the hook. Uh, it, just a chapter beforehand, uh, a chapter beforehand, uh, Peter uh, condemned them for the hand that they played uh, in, in crucifying Christ, but yet he understood that behind all these things, both good and bad, God was working for the salvation of his people. Um, and like I said, there's been many people throughout history who've taken this truth out of balance. Um, you know, and, and some think that, you know, that because the biblical doctrine of God's sovereignty is true, that means that we, we don't have to worry about sin or evil in the world because God is using it. So let's just, you know, do whatever we do and don't worry about it because, you know, God ordains all things. Therefore, we can just do whatever we want. That's unscriptural and it's dangerous. It's a dangerous viewpoint. Uh, we have clear teaching that we are to turn from evil and to fight against temptations of the world. We're never to think that just because God is in control of all of history and all of creation that frees us from the responsibility of our actions it does not. The two truths have to be held together. Uh, if this is how you think, then uh, you've taken the truth of God's sovereignty dangerously out of its intended use. Um, it, it, sovereignty, God's sovereignty, is to be our comfort and our peace, knowing that, that God is working all things for our good. Yet it's also to be our encouragement to fight against the flesh, the world, and the devil. You know, it, it, it assures us that we will have victory. We're not, you know, God's not just rolling the cosmic dice hoping that he wins at the end. He is in control, moving everything toward his victory. And so it, it gives us encouragement, but it should never. It's out of kilter. It's out of balance if we take it to mean that, hey, I can do whatever I want because God's in control and he's sovereign. And if, you know, if I go and sleep with my neighbor's wife, God must have ordained me to sleep with my... That is totally unscriptural, totally out of, out of balance. And so we see, we're going to see this truth clearly in the final verses of Zechariah chapter 1. Uh, we're going to move through the rest of the chapters of Zechariah a lot quicker than we did in this first chapter because there's there's three different visions in the first chapter. Um, here in chapter, we're going to be in, we're just going to look at verses 18 through 21. It's going to be very short. Uh, this this uh, vision of Zechariah here, after telling us that God is still ruling on His throne, He shows the battle 
that the godly man will always face, the godly woman, the godly person, the person who is righteous, person who is indwelt by the Spirit of God, um, they're going to face a battle. And they're going to face a battle the rest of their life. Um, the Christian life is uh, it's a life called to war. We are called to war against our sin. We're called to war against our flesh. We're called to fight against the temptations and the leadings of the world. And, and we're to fight against, against the wiles of the devil. Um, the one thing of which we can be certain is that we don't have the option of not fighting. Uh, if you're a believer today, you've been thrust into the battlefield. To choose not to fight now, uh, to choose not to fight against the world is simply to choose the world side. I mean, you're you're by. You can say, you know, I'm tiptoeing through the tulips and I'm I'm whatever, and just focus on your own uh, pleasure, your own comfort in this world, your own whatever. But to do that is to take sides with the enemy. Uh, it, it's like getting dropped off in a war zone while the enemy's shooting at you. I mean, you only have two choices: you either fight or you die. I mean, it, it's as simple as that. Imagine getting dropped off in Afghanistan somewhere. Now, you you tiptoeing through the tulips and strolling in your Hawaiian shirt and your flip flops down Main Street in in, uh, in Kabul, uh, you're going to get shot. You know, so you're in the midst of a battle, whether you like it or not. Uh, there isn't another option. There there can be no peace for the child of God with the world or the flesh or the devil. There can be no peace when this war is raging. So. Verses 18 and 19 in Zechariah chapter 1 says, <clears throat> we're going to see another another different vision Zechariah has. It says, uh, and I lifted my eyes and I saw and behold four horns. And I said to the angel who talked to me, what are these? And he said unto me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. The four horns Zechariah sees they represent the powers that fight against God's people. That's what the angel tells him. That these are the these are the 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 powerful the, the the powers that have scattered God's people in the days of in the days of Zechariah. Um, many Eastern people were they were they were pastoral, uh, meaning they they shepherd flocks and raised raised livestock and all those kind of things. Therefore, um, they understood that that. The most powerful animals were often the ones with the biggest horns, you know, uh, and so the the horn became a symbol of power and of and the pride of a nation's power, so to speak. We see that throughout Scripture. It talks about uh, raising up your horn against God, and you know those kind of things. And the picture is of of power and 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 pride and and uh, and strength, and so. The idea of lifting up the horn uh, became a euphemism for for being arrogant and being proud, and you know we can see it in Daniel's vision. You know he has a vision of of ten horns, uh, uh, and, and he plainly you know tells us plainly that these ten horns are ten kings who are in conflict, and so you know, we're talking about their power and and all those kind of things. And so Zechariah asks the angel to tell him you know what these horns represent. And the angel says, these are the ungodly nations who have scattered God's people and, and wage war on them. And so <clears throat> what we can take from this is, is uh, you know, as long as the earth is turning and life goes on here 
you know, as we're waiting on the return of Christ, there's going to be war between God's people and, and all the things that attempt to turn them away from God. Um, more often than not, this battle is not, it's not a full-out firefight drawing our attention and focusing our energy. And, you know, uh, I don't know if you've ever been shot at, but uh, when when you start hearing shots and you start uh, maybe hearing bullets whizzing, you know, even not doesn't even have to be close to you, but you hear them whiz by. Um, that that tends to that tends to grab your attention. It tends to focus you on on either fight or flight, one of the two. Uh, and that's more often than not, that's not the kind of battle that we're in. The, the The biggest problem we have as believers is not is not fighting the battle when the shots are being fired and all hell's breaking loose. We don't have a problem fighting that battle. Um, our biggest problem is when our attention and focus is being subtly lured away into other things. We get distracted by the shiny things of the world, the beautiful things. The well, we start longing for our little idols. We we think you know uh, that they'll make us happy, and and slowly, slowly but surely, we're drawn away from the very source of our strength and victory. And so, when all hell does break loose and the bullets go to flying. Uh, you've been sapped of your strength. You've been, you've been. It's not a great way to put it, but you've been out of practice. You've been, you've been undisciplined. You've been untrained. And of course, you know the first thing that happens is, you know, you, you get injured. Um, this is how the enemy operates more often than not, and you know it's always those little bitty foxes that spoil the vine. So Zechariah is, is he's specifically speaking of those nations. And these horns are those nations that came into Israel's land, destroyed their temple and their city, and scattered them among the nations. <clears throat> we see that uh, that tactic still happening today. God's people are, are defeated by sin, worldliness, idolatry. They're scattered among the heathen where they look like the world, they sound like the world. Um, Zechariah warns us that there will never be a time of peace between the world and and God's people, not in this life. The horns of the enemy will always be lifted up, so to speak, uh, against us. And we're called to make war on them in every part of our life. We're, we're called to put on the whole armor of God, um, not so that we can be comfortable and happy, but so that we can go into battle and be prepared at a moment's notice. Uh, the flaming arrows of, of the devil, as, as pictured in Ephesians chapter 6, they, they, launch, they can launch at any time. And in fact, they're most likely to launch when we're least expecting it, when we're not ready for it. Um, of one thing you can be sure, and the devil is good at being the devil, and he is not stupid by any stretch of the imagination. Um, those of the world will always do battle with God's children. And this is what Zechariah sees. He sees these horns. He asks the angels, you know, what are these horns? And the angel says, these horns are the nations that have scattered God's people. Um, we see today you can see it more and more we see the tendency of secularism to take over governments and world systems and in addition to this it seems seems increasingly true that the only religious worldview that's you know allowed to be in the crosshairs of anybody is is christianity uh islam which is far more violent and exclusive uh it, it seems to get a pass when the world starts doing battle against religions and and uh, of course, we all know that why that is. You know, it's because Islam doesn't worship the true God; only Christianity worships the God of the universe. And this is the God which is which the forces of darkness can't tolerate. You know, if you wanna you wanna believe in 
in some god that doesn't exist out there the the spiritual powers and forces of darkness they they could care less you know knock yourself out but you start worshiping the true god and now we've got trouble so the war is raging and it's going to continue uh you can bet your bottom dollar that that this is this is going to be so but but look at what god says in the next two verses in verse verse 20 and 21 he says then the lord showed me four craftsmen and I said, what are these coming to do? He said, these are, he goes back to the horns, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. And now he's going to talk about the craftsmen. He said, and these, these craftsmen, they have come to terrify them, to terrify the horns, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. And so in the midst of the world's horns for lack of a better way to put it to take Zechariah's uh, visionary language uh, in the midst of the world's horns that rage and do battle against the godly God will have his soldiers as well he'll have his craftsmen uh, Zechariah sees four craftsmen who are also raised up uh, now some 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 versions uh, translate this word as carpenters um, the Bible translate this word many different ways depending on the context of the old testament but what it speaks of is is it speaks this term speaks of anyone who works um as a fabricator or a fashioner of material you know when we think of carpenters we're, we're just thinking of hey i go buy some wood and i and i build things and put nails in it but these guys are these are ones who works work as as fabricators and fashioners it's 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 translated many different ways in scripture it's used for carpenters stonemasons metal workers you know any kind of craftsman is you know in different contexts different places it's translated in different ways but what you see here is skillful workers who they're equipped to to ply their trade and to do it with expertise just like a um you know, a, a a master carpenter, a master builder, a master metal worker, you know, someone like that. The picture we see here is is a picture of, of blacksmiths uh, or craftsmen beating down the horns that rise up against them. I can see a, a blacksmith with an anvil beating down, you know, that's the picture that I get in my mind from the from the term uh in jeremiah twenty three twenty nine God compares his word to that of a hammer that breaks rocks into pieces, so uh we can see here that God is showing Zechariah that although the, these horns these nations that lift themselves up against god 's people they 'll always be prevalent uh, they 'll always desire to scatter scatter god 's people just like they did uh to uh, to Israel and judah uh God will also always have his people to do battle against these horns and he will equip them with every skill they need for victory these are not just hey these are you know i've got evil soldiers on this side and we've got good soldiers on this side and we're going to do battle no notice the language he's talking about he's talking about these nations are the horns that lift themselves up against god's people they are proud arrogant um powerful 
but yet we have these skilled craftsmen. These these the picture is not of just brute strength; it's of skill and workmanship, of of uh, understanding how to ply this trade. Jesus told his disciples that the gates of hell wouldn't prevail against the church. Now. Today, it's common to turn on the news or open up a newspaper and, you know, all you see is evil and ugliness and horrible news. And all we see in the, you know, is the world's going to hell in a handbasket and it seems like everything's just getting worse and worse. It seems like God's people are being increasingly marginalized and persecuted. And they are. Um, at, at this particular time, you know, that I'm, I'm recording this, uh, Christians are being beheaded by Islamic groups in countries all over the world. Uh, more and more we see governments uh, that are calling biblical truth, they're calling it hateful and discriminatory. Um, it, it'll be very easy as the days go on to get more and more discouraged about the way the world is headed. Um, but what we must always remember that God said this world would spin as long as he allows it to spin. Uh, I remember uh, in a, in a passage in Genesis, one of my favorite passages, he told Noah that the seasons would continue always until the Lord himself said it's time to end. Uh, don't have to worry about global warming. Don't have to worry about, you know, nuclear holocaust or, you know, you just pick your worldwide tragedy. Uh, bad things may happen, but God told Noah that. The seasons would continue, the days would continue, the harvest would continue, the, those things would continue until God says it's enough. And so, in the same way, we know that as, as long as the earth exists, as, as well as the new heavens and the new earth, God will have his people in place. Uh, it doesn't matter how the heathen rage and what schemes the horns, quote-unquote, come up with, God will always have his craftsmen. He'll always have his craftsmen in place to beat back the attacks of the godless. The The word of God is a double-edged sword with, um, it's with, it's this sword that, uh, that uh, this, the craftsmen are wielding that beat back these, these horns of, of the nations. It, it's the hammer that crushes all things beneath it. Um, and it's a short passage, so we're not going to be much longer, but notice that the horns bring shame and suffering to God's people. But these craftsmen have been sent to destroy them, to destroy the horns. Uh, they have come to terrify the horns and to throw them down. Uh, and so, besides having a grounding and foundation in the word, uh, the best offense, the best offense and defense in this war is the united efforts of the fellowship of believers. I can't stress how important it is for each believer to be invested in a local fellowship under the leadership of pastor and elders and, and, and godly men and women. Um, there simply is no way to overemphasize this. Uh, the craftsmen are skilled uh, that Zechariah sees. They're skilled in tearing down the strongholds of the enemy. Uh, but this is something that's done as the word of God is applied directly to your particular situation. That's what so many people don't understand. The TV preacher doesn't know you. He doesn't know what you're going through. 
Uh, he doesn't know from where you've come and the battles that you've already fought, the things that you've been through. He isn't going to be beside your, your bed holding your hand during the toughest times of, of your life. Your fellowship, uh, the fellowship of the brethren to which you belong are the ones who are going to are gonna do that. God will have his craftsmen, but no man is ever called to fight alone. Um, even when Paul spoke of putting on the armor of God in Ephesians 6, all those pronouns, all those pronouns, I want all those verbs that say put on this and taking this and taking that and the shield of faith and the, 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 the helmet of salvation, all of those verbs and pronouns he uses are plural. They're not singular. The picture that he's painting is not of a lone soldier standing ready for combat. The picture is an army of soldiers standing together side by side, ready to fight, ready to fight to the death for the man on your right or on your left. Uh, the craftsmen uh, are sent to destroy the horns. And this is the body of Christ fighting as a complete body that defeats the enemy. Christ himself has already won the war and spoiled the power of darkness by his work uh, of death and resurrection, but the battles are still are still fought by those who follow him. Uh, but we can take heart because just as there will always be enemies, God will always have His people, and united together in Christ, they're invincible against anything that the enemy can throw at them. Will they have suffering in this life? Definitely. Eventually, everyone will have suffering in this life unless Jesus returns first. Will they have setbacks? Will they have uh, defeats as battles are raged. Yes, yes, and yes. But understand that even in the midst of those defeats, even in the midst of the suffering, God is sovereign above all things. He's sovereign over all creation. And even when the most awful things happen, we can look to God and say, you know, I know that you have a purpose. I don't know what it is, and I sure don't understand it. Uh, but I know and I trust that you have a purpose. So there will always be times both in your life, in the life of God's people as a whole, uh, in the life of the worldwide church. Uh, there will always be times and there will always be seasons where the, the horn of the nations is r rising up against God's people. If that's the way, if you want to use the language of Zechariah, when, when the nations rage and they try to scatter and you know they try to uh, kill, steal, and destroy, they try to wreak havoc among your life and wreak havoc among your spiritual walk, wreak havoc among, um, uh, among your testimony and your relationship with God. But understand that God has always provided always brought forth the craftsman. And it doesn't just speak here, the craftsman doesn't just speak of, at the time that Zechariah uh, was writing this, remember, they were building the city back. They were building the temple back. Uh, the prophet Haggai was, was prophesying at the same time. They were building the city back. And so Zechariah's picture is, you see the you see the the story in the background. The nations have come and they have destroyed Israel. They have thrown everything down and they, they God's people went into captivity and now they have returned and now the craftsmen have come forth and they're rebuilding the city. They're rebuilding the walls under Nehemiah. They're rebuilding the temple under Haggai and Zerubbabel and and Joshua and so. We, what we see here is, is Zechariah showing that God has brought the craftsmen forth 
to uh, to to rebuild, to tear down the horns, to terrify them, to throw them down, and to bring their work to nothing. The craftsman that God has brought forward is is the people of God, the the pastors, the shepherds, the the preachers, the Sunday school teachers, the the people that have uh, godly testimonies that that inspire people to righteousness, the people who who walk after the Lord and their life is seen by other people at work and at school and the people who go and 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 go out on 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 missions not just around the world but even in their own hometown the people that the people that are working for the kingdom of God God has brought craftsmen forth you and I if when we are part of a local fellowship of believers when we invested our life in, with the lives of others and we live uh, we live simultaneously with them, sharing burdens and and rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep. Understand, God has given the craftsman that is needed perfectly to speak in your situation. Even when we fall, even when we fail and do something stupid, even when we sin, as David sat on his throne for almost a year. Uh, Psalm 32 said his bones were hurting because of the sin that he'd committed with Bathsheba and the things that had gone on. His insides were were torn to bits. You know that's the language he uses in Psalm 32 when he when he describes uh, how he how he felt uh, when he refused to confess that sin. Uh, God sent him a craftsman. Nathan came and he he illustrated his sin publicly. And David repented of that sin, received forgiveness for that sin. And so God will always have his craftsmen. There will always be a battle that will always be raging. Uh, but we know that because God is sovereign, the victory is already won. Uh, we have responsibility for our actions. We are commanded not to sin. We We can't run off into the ditch thinking... You know, since it's already done, we don't have to worry about anything. That's not the way God has chosen for this world to spin. Uh, he's chosen for us to uh, make conscious choices, real choices, to obey or disobey and to, and to live our lives. But the assurance that we have, the hope that we have, the confidence that we have, that no matter what, this thing doesn't rest on my shoulders God is moving history in the direction that he sees fit. And any time the horn of the enemy is uh, risen, rising up against me or against God's people, there will always, always, always be a craftsman that is brought forth in one form or another who will terrify that enemy and throw him down.